0: It's the Security Weekly News. Uh, Welcome to the week of 1 May 2022. We got Office Pets, Aruba and Avaya, which sound like something else, but we know what they are. DOD scammed, uh, Russian forced labor, Google, GitHub, Apple obsolescence, and Jason Wood on this episode of the Security Weekly News.
1: This is Security Weekly, for security professionals by security professionals. We interrupt our program
0: to bring you news.
1: It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week, your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly news monitoring and maintaining compliance is a never-ending struggle with a high price of failure firemont helps customers meet complex and varying compliance requirements firemont has fully customizable reporting Analytics, assessments, and dashboards to meet the compliance needs of any organization. With Firemon, compliance reports take a tenth of the time, and real time continuous compliance eliminates the anxiety and headaches of audit preparation. Improve security outcomes by improving security operations with Firemon. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Firemon to learn more cyber criminals are working overtime last year in the fourth quarter alone phishing attacks disguised as covid testing information increased by 521 percent. barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers find out about the 13 email threat types and how barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams your customers and your reputation get your free ebook at securityweekly.com forward slash barracuda that's security Weekly.com
0: forward slash Barracuda. All right, welcome to the Security Weekly News, episode 209. I'm Doug White. Uh, this week, Armis Cybersecurity discovered five vulnerabilities in networking equipment from Aruba, which is the, uh, that's HP's division that that does this stuff, and Avaya, which is owned by Extreme. So that's those purple ones. Or at least they used to be. I don't think they're purple anymore, but they used to be purple. But uh, Avaya and Aruba, which sound like two golden labs or something, but nevertheless. Uh, or islands, maybe. Aruba is an island, I think. But anyway, the vulnerabilities have been named TL Storm 2.0 as it involves a misuse of the nano SSL TLS library, which uh, also had a previous vulnerability that was called uh, TLSStorm uh, 1.0. And uh, two of the flaws on Aruba basically involved the use of that nano SSL for radius authentication and um, also for the captive portal system that they use for management of those devices. And basically what happens is uh, that implementation ended up with heap overflows, which, as we all know, uh, allow you to point to attacker data and, well, you know how that all ends. On the Avaya the nano SSL library introduced three flaws, and I actually shouldn't say it like that. The, the use of nano SSL library resulted in three flaws, not because of nano SSL. But the first was a TLS reassembly heap overflow, an HTTP header parsing stack overflow, and an HTTP post request handling overflow. So it was every possible overflow you could po- probably have. Uh, now the article does go on and say the issue is not within the nano SSL library itself. But it was the way that these two vendors implemented that library on their device, which resulted in missing error checks, missing validation steps, and improper boundary checks, which is how you end up with overflow type stuff. Armas did say they had not seen any evidence of this being exploited in the wild uh, and that they had informed both companies three months ago and that patches which address most of the issues have been issued. So basically, you should patch your devices. There is a full list of all the devices that were affected by these flaws in the article. So if you're using Avaya or Aruba uh, networking equipment, uh, you might want to check that out and see if you need to patch uh, any of your stuff or at least mitigate in some other way. I guess sometimes hackers are not out of jurisdiction. I mean, we you know we get that a lot, and it's just kind of like, well, it's all over, you know, yeah, the guy that hacked me, the guy that stole my money, all this stuff is located in, you know, I don't know, Venezuela, and there's not much anybody can do. But in this case, the Department of Defense actually convicted someone, a Sirkan Oyunter, who is a resident of California. And apparently Mr. Oyunter, I I guess Mr. Uh, Well, individual Oyunter will be nice and correct. Uh, Individual Oyunter uh, is a resident of California and was running a phishing scam that, that according to the Department of Defense, caused $23.5 million in damages to the United States. Now, Oyunter was charged in the state of California by the Department of Defense and was convicted in the state of California. So, you know, that's a nice little local down-home story. But anyway, Yunter was convicted of conspiracy to, this sounds like those old time hacking trials, was convicted of conspiracy to commit wire, email, and bank fraud, unauthorized device access, aggravated identity theft, and making false statements to federal officers. The only thing they didn't throw in there was resisting arrest. So, you know, I'm surprised that wasn't in there too. But anyway, the case was from September 2018, but it's just now gone to trial. And basically what it did was it involved a domain doppelganger type attack which kind of looked like dla.mil which is a very legit military site for contractors but the domain they registered and used was dia-mill.com so it was one of those kind of things where they get you to look at it you glance at it and go oh dia or dl I'm sorry not dia dla dla.mil seems like it's okay the emails were sent to the system for award management which is a, uh, a system at the Department of Defense that, that maintains a database of vendors who want to sell things to the U.S. government. And I, I used to work for some of this stuff, so I have seen that uh, system before. And so basically, if you're a vendor, you have to sign in there, create an account, put all your data in there, and then they can review this for people that want to you know, sell them whatever, for everything from gasoline to bullets to you name it. Uh, there were links in the email to a clone of login.gov, which is the official login site for almost all these government resources which if you're in InfraGuard or any of the other kind of things you you may have a login there um, and of course these are vendors that uh, are going there they get an email from dla. you know they think dla.mil they say oh no I better go check this out they get redirected to a login.gov site which looks like the login.gov site and of course enter all their account details so one of the actions that was documented in this trial was that Oyunter was going into a Southeast Asian account. So there's somebody they had gotten information from. And that account had 11 active contracts to provide fuel, uh, jet fuel in particular, to the U.S. military. And there was a contract outstanding for $23-plus million. And there was a payment pending for all that, like, millions of gallons of jet fuel and basically what this person did was they redirected. It's a common kind of thing. They changed the account payment information from one bank account to another one. Now DOD had a system in place that actually watched for changes to bank accounts in this system. And so when he made that change, it set off an alert because it runs every 24 hours. And so you know he's a little nervous probably, but this guy has got, you know, all he's got the social engineering skills. Oyunter called the Defense Logistics Agency and social engineered them into approving the change to the account, and then they let the funds transfer. Now, they set up then a bunch of fake invoices for a car dealership to launder all the money that they got from this, and the car dealership was actually in New Jersey, and that person was arrested as well. So Oyunter and the dealership owner got convicted, and they're both going to be sentenced uh, later this year. So pretty you know, big deal. The Shawshank Redemption is a movie about a smart accountant that does the warden's books, among other things. I mean, like, like I could do all the, the warden's network support or maybe some light C coding, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, I mean, well, Russia liked that idea a lot. And apparently a lot of trained people in Russia who are IT professionals and cybersecurity professionals and so forth have decided that since they can leave, they decided maybe it would be a really good time to have a holiday somewhere a bit further west, you know, like, say, Austria, or France, or the Isle of Ben, I don't know, maybe New York, um, you know, that kind of thing. But the Russian government suddenly realized they had locked up some tech people, too. I mean, you know, we have social engineers, Rust programmers, Cisco engineers, all locked up down in the Gulag with Victor the Cannibal, Dave the Eyeball Thief, and Johan, that guy that was stealing teeth in St. Petersburg. And so on the 27th of April, the Federal Penitentiary Service in Russia, which sounds pretty grim to me, announced that they were going to recruit... And I love how they use the word recruit. They're going to recruit IT specialists from Russian prisons to work remotely for domestic commercial companies. So the next time you call support and it's being outsourced and you're using gum, or I think it's pronounced gum, actually, uh, Goom, which is a big department store chain in Russia, you might be talking to an incarcerated IT specialist. Not, I mean, not that we care. The recruits are people sentenced to forced labor to try and bridge the gap of the estimated 95,000 unfilled IT jobs in Russia currently. That number had been declining due to projects being proposed and uh, and, and so forth that had been canceled. And in fact, uh, unfilled jobs were down about 25% from 2020, probably with pandemic stuff and whatever, but it's a, apparently it's very, very difficult to hire anyone there. Uh, can you imagine, like, oh, look at this job. Uh, it, it's exciting. It's, it's uh, yeah, wait a minute. Is that in Russia? Um, a recent estimate by the Russian Association for Electronic Communications said that between 70 to 100,000 people additionally will leave Russia who are IT specialists in a second wave of departures after the beginning of the Ukraine war. So people were already leaving that could, but now with the war and everything, a lot more people are leaving. Now, inmates in Russia receive roughly 281 U.S. dollars a month for their forced labor, which sounds a lot better when you say like 20,000 rubles. But yeah, 281 dollars a month. What's worse? Can you? I mean, can you imagine being sentenced to Cobol support or JavaScript support? I mean, I'm sure there'd be juicy jobs too, just like in, you know how like the prison library is supposed to be a good job and working the metal shop is a bad job. And I mean, all I know about prison is what I saw on television, so it's probably not accurate. But but now now there could be like, oh man, I got sentenced to Palo Alto support. What do I got to do to get put back in charge of Cisco Group? Come on, filthy screws, filthy screws, Attica, Attica, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I wouldn't last in prison very long, I'm afraid. But who knows? With my knowledge of TV prison, you know, maybe I would be like like the real guy to contact. I I could be. Uh, Yeah, whatever I was saying. All right. Speaking of Russia, though, forever there has been an idea in cybersecurity that you don't mess with Russia. You don't poke the bear, as they say in the United States, especially when it comes to cyber attacks. And a lot of that was because there was this overall fear of provoking some kind of massive retaliation of cyber uh, strikes that kept all these governments in the West to just leave them alone. I mean, despite the fact they were harboring all kinds of ransomware gangs and so forth. Now, in fact, when the war started, it was after years of Russian attacks on the West from ransomware gangs and all those kind of people. And and pretty much with the advent of war, everyone thought, and I mean, I remember seeing all the headlines and getting asked about this. Everybody thought there was going to be a massive wave of cyber attacks against, you know, the Ukraine, and there were. There was a lot in the Ukraine, but against a lot of other Western countries. Well, and and there were. But as we enter the third month of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, it seems like that Russia is not just losing the kinetic war, but they're also losing the cyber war. Uh, the Ukraine sort of started all this because, well, they didn't start it, but they're trying to finish it. So you hang in there, guys. But the Ukraine started this with an invitation to hack Russia and you know, invited anybody in the world that wanted to join the Ukrainian uh, electronic, well, I don't remember what they called it, but there was some kind of Ukrainian task force or something that was going to hack Russian assets. And, of course, everybody, and I got asked at least three times by different people, like, you think that they would prosecute me if I was attacking Russian assets? And you know, everybody's like, really? I, I'd like to see that in court uh, in the United States. But as a result of all this, well, Imagine that if I told you a whole world of hackers that it's just a free-for-all. Go get them. I mean, that's pretty much what's happened. Exfiltration, theft-to-government data, financial data, passwords, sensitive pictures, you name it, it's all being being stolen from Russian companies and government sites. Defacements, and on and on and on. A recent study showed that more passwords and sensitive data from Russia were dumped into the open web in March than from any other country in the world. So, and one small group of hacktivists that they were talking to in this article is called Network Battalion 65. Hello, Network Battalion 65. But they were one group that had been working really hard on this. They left notes on Russian sites that said things like, Federation government, your lack of honor and blatant war crimes have earned you a special prize. This bank is hacked, ransomed, and soon to have sensitive data dumped on the Internet. Uh, the group was talking to Washington Post via some kind of an encrypted chat. I, they didn't say what it was, but I, I'm guessing it was, you know, Telegram or, or maybe Signal or something. But um, they said that they do not get any assistance from any government and, or, or, they, or from the Ukraine. Of course, that's what everybody has to say if they, you know, if they get interviewed by somebody. But uh, so de- despite the now apparent myth of Russian cyber superiority, maybe Russia spent too much on red teams. Get it? Red team? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it didn't land, but they didn't, they might've spent a little more on blue teams, but they didn't. So there you go. Google announced this week that it is expanding the data. You can request to be removed from search results, which will now include your personal contact information, like phone numbers, email addresses, and physical addresses. Uh, they had just recently added a policy, which allowed people under 18 to remove images of themselves from any sort of Google search results. Uh, now, they So they're adding this additional policy to let anyone have things about them removed. So a lot of this is from docs to data and stuff like that. But it could also just be because your data was put up on a site, you know in error. For them to consider your removal request, uh, you have to actually relate this to a government ID number, a bank account number, credit card number, signatures, ID docs, medical records, personal contact info, or login credentials. And I think it required that you you show them the site that you know this is being distributed by. Um, Krebs actually tested this because apparently there was a site called Brian's Club, which is a dark website that sells data that has had a lot of his data up for years for sale. And he requested that Google remove the results uh, to get his personal information taken down. He said so far he had not received a response from Google. It's a pretty new program, but you can check it out if you know that your data is getting pulled up somewhere. I don't know how that keeps it from getting pulled up by some other search engine, but but at least it would not be in Google. this is a, this next article is pretty interesting about GitHub uh, being compromised, and it was a final report from I guess Microsoft Lab on uh, on this incident that that had occurred. And in the incident, private source code was being stolen off of GitHub. Now, some of this is just misuse because people all the time put stuff up on public sites that they think are private. And that stuff gets stolen. I mean, it's been going on for years and years and years. And I, I think that that people misuse GitHub a lot for this kind of stuff. And the potential for putting things in the wrong bit bucket are really high on these kind of repositories, at least to me. I mean, I've put up stuff on there, and, you know, I I really took a lot of steps because I I wanted to share it, but I didn't want to share it with the whole world. It wasn't anything racy, but it was just, like, sort of proprietary. But in this particular case, attackers apparently acquired GitHub authentication tokens. And they used these tokens then to list all the subaccounts that were associated with the tokens and the projects that the tokens could access. They chose the most interesting sounding names out of there, enumerated those repositories, and then said, uh, you know, they, they determined they were interesting. And then they cloned all that code out. So they were able to take a lot of this. And a lot of this apparently was in private repositories, even that were set up correctly, but uh, they, they were treated like public ones through this, uh, this, tack, this hack. It's not exactly clear what happened in the report, but they, they advised uh, from the Microsoft report that you, you put together a regular review process for any kind of third-party authentication tokens that you have created, have a method to revoke all third-party authentication tokens for your, all your different services, and that you need to understand the risks of data storage in the cloud for private material. All the organizations that were compromised were using either Heroku or Travis CI, uh, which are continuous integration systems, which if you've never heard that term before, it's basically a a tool that you build into your application that will continually update all your third-party APIs and other components on a regular basis. So anyway, it's a pretty good story about this, and, and it's not a bad idea, I think, for everybody to review this, uh, especially if you're using any kind of pu- you know public-slash-private storage, whether it's Dropbox or AWS or whatever it is, but this was particularly related to GitHub. Apple has announced that developers will be given 90 days to update code that has been untouched for three years or more. Uh, that policy was updated last week, and it said that apps that have not been downloaded at all or have been downloaded very few times during a 12-month cycle may be deleted, as well as any code that has not been updated in three years or more. Uh, This will not affect code that's already been installed on an Apple device, but it will mean that you can't download it any longer. The policy says developers will be given a warning and given 90 days to do an update and or, I guess, generate some downloads, uh, and that there is an appeal process in place so that if your app is being targeted by this, you can do something about it. He's a master of whale mimicry and can imitate the calls of 20 different types of whales, even down to regional dialects. While his neighbors may not enjoy the late-night practice sessions to successfully imitate the mating calls of Boston blue whales, experts say he is simply the best, or at least part whale. Please welcome Jason Wood.
2: Everybody, it's good to be with you again. Um, this week, I saw an article on uh, Ars Technica that caught my attention uh, about a basically a newly minted threat actor group from Mandiant named UNC3524, which you know the this is basically a group that's that, that appears to be focused on espionage and really uh, operational security, which is what I thought was interesting about reading the post on on. Uh, Ars Technica, as well as the blog post released by Mandiant, and you can find those on the in the show notes. But uh, they're, again, they're really focused on they're they're trying to stay out of sight, stay in that environment as long as they can. And I thought some of the things they were doing was, were really interesting to bring up here. Um, so let's we'll start out with the group itself. Uh, UNC three five two four is a newly named group. Uh, from reading the blog post from Mandiant and actually both articles, uh, it sounds like the yeah, at this point, Mandiant isn't, you know, giving any kind of real attribution. This is mostly a group name to to track the activities, and they've they've narrowed this down to at least enough to say that this is a specific threat actor group. Uh, but they're not making any real speculations about who's sponsoring them or, or anything like that. Uh, about as far as they were willing to go in the post was to say that some of the TTPs or the techniques being used during the intrusions overlapped with things they've seen other Russian, uh, known Russian uh, threat actors use. And that's about where they left it at. Uh, they they didn't go any further than that. Um, but they are definitely tracking this campaign because of some of the tooling they're using. In particular, you know they have what is, they're calling a novel backdoor. It's not something that they've seen prior uh, that the, the group is using, as well as how that they're using it. Uh, the, the backdoor itself, I thought, was really kind of interesting. It, it is basically acting as a SSH client. Uh, that is running on some kind of system that's been compromised inside of the organization. And they're calling this quiet exit. I'm assuming this is the quiet exit out of the network to command and control based on how the, the, uh, the implant operates. They get it running on a, and on a system that they've infected. And then this reaches back out and creates an SSH tunnel or creates a socks proxy as we would normally see, you know, an SSH client be able to do um, out to the command and control infrastructure, and there, you know, that's where the interaction starts taking place and how they pivot back into the network. Now, one interesting twist, though, on this is you could say, okay, well, that doesn't sound terribly interesting. Uh, is an SSH client with some other stuff. So who cares? What is interesting about this is where they're deploying it. Uh, Instead of, you know, a Linux server or something like that, they're focusing on devices that are really difficult to monitor the, you know, do security monitoring on. So think of like a SAN array or maybe a NAS device, a wireless access point. um, Load balancers was another one that they listed. Uh, things that we can't, you know, turn around and uh, deploy some kind of EDR client to because that wouldn't be supported uh, by the vendor, and and so you you're basically depending on network telemetry or activity or uh, originating from those devices on other hosts that we can monitor. So I thought that was kind of kind of wild. There they've they've definitely gone to to target things that are. Difficult for us to keep an eye on. Um, once they get the this up there and running, the uh, you know, like I said, it reaches out to the C2 infrastructure. Well, they went for some obscurity there as well. They're using dynamic domain names, so the IP address can move around as needed. And they're basically describing the infrastructure as a botnet that is running on conference room camera systems. And they listed off the vendor, uh, which name I forget. Uh, off top of my head, but a camera system, system in particular that, that they like to target for this uh, that had been exposed to the internet. Now, they don't know exactly how these camera systems were, were you know, published to the internet. They're guessing, uh, Mandiat is guessing, uh, that this is probably something like they turn it on, uh, the, the victims running the C2 infrastructure, which may be different than the victims where Quiet Exit is running. Um... They turn on the camera system. UPNP kicks off, does what it does best, and reconfigures some of the network security to publish some of the the, uh, the endpoints into the application out to the internet. The actors are looking for that. They compromise it. Uh, I think there was a mention of it being out of date system at that. And then they, they use that basically as their command and control. Uh, so, you know, UPnP, it just kind of continues to be the, the gift that keeps on giving uh, and giving access to threat actors to different environments. They also, uh, you know, they, the actor, Mandy made some observations. The actor was pretty quick at... Um, at reinfecting an environment if they'd been discovered. The the article makes a comment about, um, you know, the, the botnet staying out of sight for 18 months or being, you know, undiscovered. It didn't really sound like that, though, in some ways, because they were just, you know, the victims of the the quiet exit implant would discover, in some cases, the activity would try and kick them out, but then the the bad guy would come back in, or UNC three five two four would come back in, recompromise the environment. They like to use uh, some web shells to do that, uh, in, in at least at some point uh, they call it, was it ReGeorge, uh web shell R E G E O R G that they have modified, done more you know heavy obfuscation on to to basically make that more difficult and they'll use that as one mechanism to to come back into the environment and to re-establish quiet exit on another system um so that was, you know, kind of how they're they're staying in these environments. Now, once they have their access to the environment, you know, they've established quiet exit and got it up and running. The actors move to collecting information uh, that they want from the organization, and in this case, it appears to be, at least according to the article from Mandiant, aimed at Exchange, Microsoft Exchange, uh, in particular the Exchange Web Services. So there, they're making programmatic requests to pull data from specific mailboxes and they're focusing on different groups inside of organizations that are of particular interest to them. Um, and so, and they're going after either on-premises or uh, Microsoft 365 hosted uh, exchange. In either case, they're just leveraging uh, accounts that they've gathered up to to programmatically query uh, the, the mailboxes or the, the mail system like They were kind of intended to, except not by the bad guys, Um, you know, supposed to be the victims, uh, the users themselves who are are using this legitimately. Regardless, uh, who's in target? Well, anybody that's in executive teams, folks who work in mergers and acquisitions are also in scope. And... As a deviation from that is IT security. Now the you know the, the business side of things you could look at and say okay this makes sense this sounds like to me the ultimate tasking that they're after you know where they're trying to gather information that is inter- of interest to the group. The IT security group is a little bit off to the side from that and and it is basically proposing that the uh, the focus on IT security is to look at or monitor for signs that they have been discovered. So they're going to look for email messages saying, Hey, we've got something going on on this host or whatnot. And so they're digging into the mail system, looking for that type of, uh, communication. Now, you know, one lesson that kind of comes away from that is that internal email, obviously, you know, most organizations trust it heavily. Um, so, you know, we expect that to be a safe communication channel. However, in some intrusions, it is not going to be a safe communication channel. So we need to be prepared for that ahead of time. One of the things Mandiant made note of in their their article is that if the emails themselves that were being sent internally were being encrypted via uh, um, PGP, S-MIME, or uh Office 365 message encryption. Um, you know They'll get the messages, but they'll only be able to see the encrypted cipher text at that point. So they would have to defeat that and come up with keys. So that is one defense as well against that is to make sure you've got some internal encryption going on. So even on the exchange server, it's not understandable if somebody were to gain access to it. Um, you know, this is one of those things that most intrusions is probably not going to be something that I would expect to be targeted heavily or that a threat actor would do. But obviously, you don't know which intrusion that's going to be that's going to need that. So it's you know we need to be prepared for that because it's going to be one of those situations. You don't need it until you need it. And then now we've got to stand it up on the fly. And this may not work out really all that well, uh, particularly since you're probably using your email accounts to... To establish some of this this infrastructure initially, so uh, be prepared for that. You know, like I said, the the encryption internally is definitely a defense to to take a look at, as well as make sure you have some kind of um, other mechanism to to for out of bound out of band communications. Now, there, most of this sounds like things that we would have to pick up on network telemetry or logs on the Exchange server, um, you know, if there's enough information for us there to, to indicate something unusual is happening. Uh, there is some areas where we can collect uh, or where, you know, it's possible for victims to collect uh, information on, like, traditional endpoints, Windows systems, and, and whatnot. They, the actor was av- observed using WMI, Uh, to execute commands from, you know, a host running the implant to a Windows host running inside of the environment. That obviously would become visible to traditional EDR, um, you know, and our our tools there on the endpoint. So if you're monitoring for command command execution and uh, unusual commands, um, that is something to focus on. They also gave a hit on uh, where they were basically using those commands to output the data to a what they're calling uh, a debug log file so they're they're just trying to masquerade and blend in and um and so they would write information there and then read it to pull it back out of the environment they also used a lot of masquerading of their binaries or their commands to, to try and blend in as well i think they made an observation that like quiet implant at one point was trying to be named as cron but there was some kind of problem with their implementation, so that didn't work out for the actor. Um, Mandate goes on to release, like I said, some examples of how, you know, the queries are being used against Exchange. Uh, They also gave some things for you to go look for in binaries on your Linux system, so some things you could grep for. Um, You know, they gave some examples of recursive greps against the hard drive uh, to look for some of the binaries or, you know... The patterns that you will see inside the binaries, to uh, to see if you have something infected there. So this is something I would take a look at um, if I was concerned about this. I could take these commands and then turn around and pivot to, let's say, um, my load balancer or something like that, and then do a grep and look for uh, signs of these binaries being here. Uh, they also give some tips on remediation and and map things out to Mitre Attack as well as your signatures and other things. So there's a lot of information here to unpack. I've just kind of covered it briefly what's going on, but it was a really interesting intrusion to see how, you know, really kind of a more sophisticated threat actor operates and things that they'll do. If this is of of interest to you, and it should be of interest to all of us, uh, go ahead and take a look at this because there's some really good information here about how they're operating and some things for us to consider, again, for our environments. Would we be able to detect this? How would we go about it uh, doing so? And how would we respond to that? So go take
0: a look at that. All right. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Another excellent commentary. Uh, And finally, as companies start to ask employees to return to the cube farm, not sure why they're doing that, but you know, it's how it's always been done. So we have to keep doing it. Uh, Personally, I I get a lot more done at home, you know, uh, than I have if I have to go sit somewhere all day without my screens and my cats and everything like that. And, you know, I have to use your restricted system and, and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, not to mention all the people that want to come talk to you and have you come to their birthday party and all that social stuff. They probably don't really want the programming group to come up out of the basement to the going away party for old Gil. But, you know, everybody's invited, except except you, Michael. You're not invited anymore, and you know what you did in the break room, so no more. But this article, anyway, says that more offices are trying to go pet-friendly. Now, I know my pets are not going to be happy if my wife has to go back to her office uh, when they've gotten used to 24/7 attention for the last three years, so why not take them to the office? Well, the article has some interesting thoughts about it, and while I have tons of empathy for animals, not that much for people, uh, and I love cats and dogs, and I even like snakes and and you know spiders and stuff like that, but I kind of get the point. I mean, when I was thinking about it, reading the article, it's kind of like kids. You know, everybody thinks their kid's going to be awesome and special, and if they bring them to the office, everybody's going to just be like, ah, yeah, no. Um, you know, you know, then you get this. Oh, sorry, Mr. Cat just sprayed your desk. It's going to stink for a while, but isn't he just precious? Oh no. Waggy McTaylorson ate your TPS report and chewed through the server cables. Not to mention if you line up everybody who's allergic to this cat or that dog. Or you're like me, I used to be allergic, I, I am still probably allergic to flea powder. I thought it was allergic to cats, and then I found out it was some kind of flea powder people were putting on them. But anyway, it's, it's gonna turn into a real menagerie down at Slough Office Supply Company. I mean, whose pets get to come? Is there some limit on how many pets I can bring? Can I bring Mrs. Fuzzy Wobbles, my pet five meter long snake, or, or Joey down in supply as a pet wolverine? And it only goes into a rage frenzy if it's startled. So, you know, watch it with the fire alarms. I, I mean, I don't know. I always enjoyed pets at the office, but I did remember back when I, I, I thought I was deathly allergic to cats and how miserable I would have been if I went to somebody's house who had a cat and I spent the whole evening either taking drugs, which once you mix those drugs with allergy meds, it does weird things, or or you just look like you went 10 rounds with Mr. T and, and your eyes are swollen shut and you walk out yelling, "Cut me, Mick, Cut me. But... Anyway, I I did just include the article because I always like Office Patch, but apparently you might want to think about the policies on this pretty carefully. And that's the news. Thanks, Jason. I'll see you on Friday on the Wrap-Up Show.